So Tuesday, what happens on Tuesday? Anybody know the date of Tuesday? Halloween. 31st of uh, October, Halloween. Something else, though, really important. It's Reformation Day. It's called Reformation Day because the 31st of October was when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses on the wall of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. And what it was is he was rejecting uh, these ideas that the Catholic Church had developed, specifically things like indulgences, which was uh, because the Catholic Church taught this, this doctrine of purgatory, which was kind of like, okay, you die and you weren't quite holy enough, and so then you suffer a bit in purgatory, and that suffering uh, fulfills what um, needs to happen. And so everyone, of course, knew that they probably weren't good enough, and so they, they were afraid of how long they're going to spend in this tormented place called purgatory. And so the Catholic Church is a way to raise money to build their churches and fund their endeavors. They basically started selling what's called indulgences, which meant that you thought, man, I really would like to sleep with a prostitute, but that means longer in purgatory. Oh, I know. I'll spend 100 pounds on an indulgence, and then I can do what I want to do. They, they also were doing things like, can you imagine the guilt you would feel? Say, you know, Aunt Bessie uh, died, and we thought she was great, but we're not too sure if she, how long she's going to spend in purgatory. So I loved Aunt Bessie, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to spend all the money I have on these indulgences that hopefully will get her out of purgatory sooner. So, so these things sound so foreign and offensive to us, but you have to be able to think about what it was like to be someone who had faith in the God of Scripture, faith in the God of the church in that day. How hard it was. How difficult it was for people to think that. Now, I want to be really clear about a couple of things before we talk about Romans chapter um, 4. One is, the Catholic Church didn't get everything wrong. They did teach the, the truth about who Jesus was. Uh, they did believe in things like the Trinity. They did make sure they kept the Scripture safe as much as they could. Um, there, were, there were real believers in the Catholic Church. There still are, I believe, real believers in the Catholic Church. Uh, they didn't get everything wrong, but the things they got wrong were damnable. They were, they were what kept people from saving faith. Now, here's what's interesting. What's interesting to me is when we have this thing that we now call the Reformation, uh, this was not when the gospel was discovered. This is when the good news of Jesus was rediscovered. Some of you may have heard uh, this phrase that they talk about the five solas. You might have heard this uh, phrase, sola scriptura. Uh, or today we're going to talk about one of the phrases is sole fide. And, and what those are, they're Latin phrases that mean in alone something, like sola fide is by faith alone. Sola scriptura is in, by scripture alone. And there's five of these things. Now these five solas, as we call them today, didn't uh, get formed in some sort of like best-selling novel during the Reformation. But there are ideas that were being rediscovered by these reformers. People like, um, people like Martin Luther, people like John Calvin, people like uh, Zwingli, uh, people like uh, Wycliffe. These men were rediscovering these truths. These truths about the, that, that we are saved by grace alone, gratis, sola gratis. We're, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
And we know this is true because we trust Scripture alone as our final authority. Now I'm saying this, and many of you, who, who, especially you who go to servants' church regularly, but many of you probably grown up in the church, I'm saying this, you're like, yeah, 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 we know that, that's, that's, that's basic. But you, you, you can't forget how this was just revolutionary uh, to the people that were considered themselves Christians of their day. How this changed everything. It changed the way people viewed people. It changed the way people viewed structures. Some of the things that Luther did as well was he, um, he, he really kind of helped rediscover the value of the family and began to call men to be fathers and women to be mothers and see their children as not just a way to maybe give them some advantage economically if they could work on the farm or, or whatever, but saw them as a precious gift from God. Those were ideas that Luther propagated or rediscovered. Um, he also uh, sort of began to propagate this idea of the value of work. Work was an, uh, a necessary evil in most people's minds. It is today in most people's minds. But actually, Luther rightly showed from the Scripture that work is a glorious thing, that God invented work, God commanded work before the fall of man. It's not a consequence of sin. It's a, it's a gift from God to help, help us have purpose and find meaning and know that we can do good because we're made in the image of our Creator who's good. So there's lots of things that Luther did, but it's also important for us to recognize that all these reformers that we've mentioned, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all the rest, these were not perfect men. They got things wrong. They did things wrong. Luther had some bizarre ideas. My favorite, because this, this comes, it was my favorite because I was a youth worker for 12 years, and this is what youth workers like. My favorite was that uh, Luther used to teach that one of the greatest weapons we have for spiritual warfare against demons was flatulence. Farting. You could fart and scare the devil away. He actually used to teach that. I thought that was great, you know, because I was a youth worker. And I think that's, it's disgusting, I know, but that's actually what he used to believe. So there were some weird ideas that some of the reformers had. But what they did do, what God used them to do, was bring us back to Scripture. Bring us back to a simplicity of simply seeing what has God said. Now, it, we, we tend to see the, sort of the, 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 the birthday of the Reformation as October 31st, 1517. So this year marks the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The day, as I said, that um, Luther nailed that 95 Theses on the, on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, we say it began there because that's, this is what happened with Luther. Luther began to rediscover, first and foremost, this idea of sole fide, by faith alone. I want to read these verses or, or teach these verses, and I, and I want you to not assume you know this. I want you to not assume that you live by this. Because Luther was a sincere man. Before he understood these truths, he was a sincere man. He was a committed man. He was a diligent man. But he was a man burdened by his own sin until these things changed him. And our hope for today is that we wouldn't just rediscover these things, but that these truths would change us. They would lay the very foundation for our relationship with God. Now Paul is writing to the church in Rome. His whole goal, we know this from the very beginning of the book of Romans, was to exalt the gospel. He, he said he couldn't wait to get to Rome and share with them the gospel. 
Now, these weren't people who had never heard about Jesus, who didn't yet believe in Jesus. This is a church of people who did believe in Jesus, who had received Christ as their Savior, were worshiping Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They were mainly a Gentile, that is a non-Jewish church. And so they had a lot of questions because unlike the Jewish people who came to believe in Jesus, they didn't have the same sort of background and foundation. The ideas were different. Their foundational ideas were different. And so even though the same gospel was saving them that was saving the Jews, Paul says, I can't wait to get there to unpack for you the entire gospel so you would know exactly how it is that God saves you and why it is you need to be saved and how that salvation changes your life. And so one of the characters that he uses is a character that they would have been familiar with as they listened to the Old Testament being taught from a New Testament perspective, and that is the character of Abraham. And you may know this, that Abram, or Abraham was first called Abram, and Abram and his wife Sarai, you can read this back in, in um, uh, the last part of Genesis 11 and the first part of Genesis 12, Abram and his wife Sarai were barren. They were unable to have children. They were getting older. This is a worrying thing in that culture. It's a worrying thing for anybody who struggles with that. It's a painful thing for anybody who struggles with that. In that culture, it wasn't just painful for them. It, was, it meant that they could be ostracized culturally. So it was a really big deal for them to be barren. And also what we know about uh, Abram and Sarai was they didn't worship the true living God. They didn't worship the God that we see now as the God of the Bible, the creator God. They worshiped the moon God more than likely. So they were idolaters. They weren't really worshiping the God uh, who made all things. But this God who made all things interrupted their life. He, he just, he just uh, reveals himself to Abraham in a way that it just shakes Abraham up. And he says, uh, Abram, I want you to start following me and I want you to leave the land of your fathers and I want you to go to the land that I'm calling you to. And when you do that, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. The earth's going to be filled with your descendants. Now, if you're barren, you're thinking, this is amazing. Is this, could this really be true? And so Abraham, he did what God asked him to do. He began to leave. Now, here's what's interesting. Abraham goes with his family. A whole lot of things happen. If you want to go back and read Genesis like 12 to 15, you'll see a whole lot of stuff going on in those chapters. Really interesting things. But uh, about 10, 15 years passes in those chapters. And Abraham and his wife Sarai, they're getting older and still no child. And so Abram begins to say, all right, God, okay, I, I, I believe that you are this God, this creator God. I believe you're the one true God. I, I want to follow after you. But when is this going to happen? You, you made this promise to me. When is this going to happen? And one of the things that God says to him, and I love the way that, that the King James, uh, New King James says it. God says to Abram, Abraham, fear not. I am your exceedingly great reward. And so what he says to Abram is, Abram, I know that you're wondering circumstantially, look, we're getting older. Uh, when, are, when is this promised child going to come? How are we going to be the father of, uh, how am I going to be the father of many nations I don't even have one yet? Uh, we've gone through a lot of things. They, they had like battles and wars and his nephew coming to his, uh, you know, Lot who is, uh, you know, kind of an extra thing to deal with. And there was all kinds of things that they had dealt with. And he's wondering, okay, God, when are you going to actually do what you've told me to do? And God doesn't give him an answer of when. 
God gives him an answer of who? God says, I want you not to, to be afraid because I am your exceedingly great reward. When he does this, the Bible says this of Abraham, and it's quoted right here in verse 3 of, of Romans 4. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So we saw in the video how Martin Luther felt like he wasn't right with God. Though he did a lot of really good things, he still never quite felt, felt like he was really right with God. It never was enough. He was weighed down by his own awareness of how much he fell short of God. Now, can we be honest to say that is not, that is not the normal thing for us culturally, at least British in British culture. We don't normally think, I'm not good enough for God. We normally think, God's not good enough for me. That's how we think in British culture and Western society. But you have to understand, Luther, having grown up in the church, would have known that there's this creator God who's given us all good things, who's, who's called us to just commands. He's given us commands that are wise and good for us to follow, and yet he fell short of following those commands. The, the two main commands, of course, are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbors itself. And he would know, maybe even if he's doing the right things, maybe he's doing them with the wrong motives. He was constantly made aware of how much he fell short of this. I wonder with Abraham if this is kind of what was going on with him. If you read from Genesis 12 to, to 15, you see Abraham showing a lot of great character, but also making some bad choices. And you wonder if as this creator God, remember this is before the Old Testament, this is before the law of Moses comes. So he didn't have the law of God, he only had what God was revealing to him in his conscience and how God was ever communicating with him. But I wonder if, as he's communicating with God and, and seeing how God is utterly perfect and separate from him, that he began to realize, man, I fall so short. Maybe that's why the promise hasn't happened yet. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, man, I've fallen short yet again. Maybe this, is, this means that maybe God's promise doesn't actually apply to me. But when, God, when, he, when he goes to God and God says to him, don't fear, Abram. I am your exceedingly great reward. What's God doing with that? God's trying to, to steer Abram's focus away from himself, away from his best efforts, away from his worst failings, and turn his focus back to God. God's saying, no, look to me. So we have this word in the New Testament, this word repent, right? First word that Jesus preached, first recorded word we should say that Jesus preached. Repent for the kingdom of God is hand. And we see that word repent, we think warning, don't we? We think crazy guy with a cardboard sign saying, repent. That's what we think. Or some angry preacher, repent. So we see it as a warning. It is a warning, don't get me wrong. There's a warning in, in, encapsulated with the word repent. But it actually means something simpler and more profound than that. Paul, the same guy who wrote this, Romans 4, Paul says, he says that when he was going throughout Asia Minor, preaching Jesus, starting churches, he says to a group of, of elders from Ephesus, he says, listen, I did not keep from you the whole counsel of God. He says, but I taught you 
repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is not just about what you're treating away from. Like, stay away from that, that's going to kill you. Stay away from that, that's going to bring God's judgment. It is that, but it's not just what you turn away from, it's who you turn to. It's who you face. And so Abraham, when Abraham's wondering, God, are you going to keep your promise? Is this actually going to happen? What happens? God says, look, look at me. Look at me. I am your exceedingly great reward. It's me who's going to bring this to pass. It's me who made this promise, God says. Look to me. Repentance is as much about turning to God as it is turning away from your sin. And when he does this, when he turns to God and he believes God's reiterated promise, it says that he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, Paul is asking a question. Wait a second. Abraham did a lot of great things. Um, uh, he, he was someone who, who, who walked by faith. James makes it clear that he was one who walked with God by faith. So he, wouldn't, he didn't just kind of say, oh yeah, okay, I believe. He was one who demonstrated faith. But Paul wants, goes to great lengths in, in Romans 4 to make sure that we recognize that Abraham was not justified before God or declared righteous before God because of his works, because of what he did. In fact, interesting, he, he asks this question. He says, or he, he makes a statement, sorry, in verse 2, he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not against, not before God. Something to boast about. The idea that Paul's saying is, look, no one ever has any room to boast before God, but the temptation when you're working your way, when you think you can do enough to be right with God, the temptation is to think, you know what, God, I've done, it. I've done my bit. Now you do your bit. That's the temptation. Now, does that sound at all familiar? Have you ever made deals with God? God, get me out of this, and I promise I'll do X, Y, and Z, just like Martin Luther did. Don't kill me by lightning, and I promise I'll become a monk. Why? Because then as a monk, he could have something to boast about. Look what I've done. Interesting, too, that, that Paul uses this kind of language in verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. He says, Now to him who works, that is the person who's wanting to work let their works make them right with God. The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, when God gives you good things, the wages, when God rewards you with good things, if your mindset is, I'm getting these good things because I've worked really hard, you're not thinking, this is grace, something I don't deserve. You're thinking, this is debt, you owe me. You owe me, God. Doesn't that at least feel familiar? Now, many of us know this truth really well, but it's amazing how easy it is for us not to live by this, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how easy it is for us to want something to boast of? Have you you ever caught yourself slipping a boast into a conversation, especially a spiritual conversation? So when I was up at four in the morning seeking God, this is what the Lord showed me. Oh, I'm doing well. I'm a little tired. You know, it's just with, you know, the four ministries I'm committed to. Sometimes I just get a bit worn out. We can do this, can't we? 
We, we love to boast. It's part of our nature. We want to boast about what we've done. We feel validated when we do good and people go... But there's a danger in this. The danger is that we are not looking to God, but looking to our works. There's a danger where we can get so puffed up. We can be like many of the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church that saw themselves as right by their works and therefore saw themselves as better than the people they served. We can become like Martin Luther where we're just so weighed down heavy by our sins that we think, there's no hope for me. I'll never do good enough to earn what I need from God. I'm trying, but it's not enough. So whether it's despair or pride, either way, that's what's produced when we say, okay, i got to get right with God by what I do, by my works. There's no freedom in it. At all. Paul is writing this so that we would know, listen, don't you know Abraham, who's called the father of all who have faith? Abraham wasn't right with God because he did such grand things. He wasn't right with God because he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. That's Genesis 22. It was because he was right with God. It was because he believed that God was who God said he was. That he was willing to say, okay, God, if you, if you want me to sacrifice the son, and in case you don't know the story, Isaac was the promised son. He said, so, you know, you know God, if you call me to sacrifice my son, I believe you're the kind of God that will so keep your promises, you'll resurrect him. It was he knew he was he knew who God was. He knew he was already right with God. Therefore, he could walk to obedience even to the point of being willing to sacrifice his own son. Now, Paul to make his point says, "Yeah, Abraham's great, but there's another guy that we all think is great too. His name's David." David, who in the scripture says was a man after God's own heart. And Paul writes this, he says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes what David writes in Psalm 32. I need to define a couple big words for you. Not big words, but not common words. Words that we don't use normally, right? We We don't use words like, righteousness every day or accounted necessarily when david or sorry when paul uses this word accounted when he says that it's been accounted for righteousness try to think in monetary terms it's an easy way to understand it think about this your bank account are, is empty might not be too hard for many of us okay <laughs> your bank account is empty and you are in debt 5 million pounds the collectors are knocking at your door. The phone's ringing off the hook. You're getting letters to the post every day. We're going to take everything away from you and you're going to go to jail unless you pay this debt. And your bank account says, nada. And then a really nice person 
makes a deposit into your account, how much do you think that deposit would be? The deposit is so big, the bank can't even calculate how much money has been put into your account. Because what you realize is not only do you now have all the debts paid, but any new debt that could possibly ever be incurred is paid, and anything you need to live your life is provided for. That's what it means to be accounted to righteousness. What's been put onto your account is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. How does God the Father look at God the Son? It's a four-letter word. Any guesses? Starts with an L, ends with an E, has an O and a V in between. <laughs> love. Love. There's a perfect love in the Godhead that's always been so that when God takes on flesh, God the Son takes on human flesh and dies a death for us, he lives a perfect life first, dies a perfect death, resurrects. It doesn't just mean that we're going to be forgiven. Paul says what it means is God's going to give us the very righteousness that God has. That right relationship that God the Father and God the Son have always enjoyed, we now get to enjoy. <clears throat> Through faith alone. It's interesting because what, what David actually wrote was, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does, shall not impute sin. In other words, God's not checking out our bank account and saying, your overdraft is like five million. He's not going to let that happen. He's going to say, not only is there not overdraft, but I'm going to enter into your account an incalculable amount of funds. Righteousness. Now, this is true. And because this is true, when we actually grasp this, then the, the fifth of the five solas, as we call them, begins to make perfect sense. Because the last of the five solas is for the glory of God alone. When, when the, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, do all things to the glory of God. When Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, let your good works so shine before men that they glorify your Father in heaven. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my Christian experience where I've, done, I've been doing all these right things and I, I say, well, you know, it's just God, it's just God. But I'm feeling like, you know, I'm, saying, I'm supposed to say it's God, but it feels like it's me. How come I don't get some credit for this? And the reason I, I can't take credit for it is because I recognize I'm only doing that because my bank account's been so topped up. I'm spending money that I never earned, so to speak. I never deserved. So all glory goes to God. It all goes to Him. Do you realize, do you realize that if your faith is in Jesus alone, if you recognize that God's giving you Christ's righteousness because of faith alone, do you realize that there is absolutely nothing, not even your own sin, that can separate you from this God? You can go right into his presence. This is why the Bible says if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. 
Jesus Christ the righteous. When we mess up, what, what do we do? We go to God. Why do we go to God? We go boldly to God. Why do we go boldly to God? Because our sins have already been paid for. We're, because we're right with Him. Because we can. This principle, this thing that Martin Luther discovered, we each have to discover, and it takes a work of God's Holy Spirit and us being willing to receive it. But this, we need to discover this reality to be free. You're not going to worship until you realize you've been made declared righteous. That's the other word that I wanted to bring up. Justified. What does justified mean? It literally means rendered innocent. You've already stood before the judge and he says you're innocent if your faith is in Jesus. Which means you don't have to fear what happens to you when you face him on judgment day. Which means you have access to him no matter what you're feeling or what you've done which means that all you do now, you just do by the same grace that saved you and you give all glory to God. This is why we want to remember Reformation Day. Because it's, if that wouldn't have happened, none of us, well, none of us probably even be here, but none of us would understand this. It would have been lost behind Century after century of religious rhetoric. But we can know now this kind of faith.